0: Silas Marner by George Eliot, Part 1, Chapter 4 Dunstan Cass, setting off in the raw morning, at the judiciously quiet pace of a man who is obliged to ride to cover on his hunter, had to take his way along the lane which, at its farther extremity, passed by the piece of unenclosed ground called the Stone Pit, where stood the cottage, once a stone shed, now for fifteen years inhabited by Silas Marner. The spot looked very dreary at this season, with the moist trodden clay about it and the red muddy water high up in the deserted quarry. That was Dunstan's first thought as he approached it. The second was that the old fool of a weaver, whose loom he heard rattling already, had a great deal of money hidden somewhere. How was it that he, Dunstan Cass, who had often heard talk of Marner's miserliness, had never thought of suggesting to Godfrey that he should frighten or persuade the old fellow into lending the money on the excellent security of the young squire's prospects. The resource occurred to him now as so easy and agreeable, especially as Marner's hoard was likely to be large enough to leave Godfrey a handsome surplus beyond his immediate needs, and enable him to accommodate his faithful brother, that he had almost turned the horse's head towards home again." Godfrey would be ready enough to accept the suggestion. He would snatch eagerly at a plan that might save him from parting with wildfire. But when Dunstan's meditation reached this point, the inclination to go on grew strong and prevailed. He didn't want to give Godfrey that pleasure. He preferred that Master Godfrey should be vexed. Moreover, Dunstan enjoyed the self-important consciousness of having a horse to sell. And the opportunity of driving a bargain, swaggering, and possibly taking someone in. He might have all the satisfaction attendant on selling his brother's horse, and not the less have the further satisfaction of setting Godfrey to borrow Marner's money. So he rode on to cover. Bryce and Keating were there, as Dunstan was quite sure they would be. He was such a lucky fellow. Heyday! said Bryce who had long had his eye on Wildfire. "'You're on your brother's horse to-day. How's that?' "'Oh, I've swapped with him,' said Dunstan, whose delight in lying, grandly independent of utility, was not to be diminished by the likelihood that his hearer would not believe him. "'Wildfire's mine now.' "'What? Has he swapped with you for that big-boned hack of yours?' said Bryce, quite aware that he should get another lie in answer." "'Oh, there was a little account between us,' said Duncy, carelessly, "'and Wildfire made it even. "'I accommodated him by taking the horse, "'though it was against my will, "'for I'd got an itch for a mare of Jordans, "'as rare a bit of blood as ever you threw your leg across. "'But I shall keep Wildfire, now I've got him, "'though I'd a bit of a hundred and fifty form the other day "'from a man over at Flitton. "'He's buying for Lord Cromleck.' a fellow with a cast in his eye, and a green waistcoat. But I mean to stick to wildfire. I shan't get a better at a fence in a hurry. The mare's got more blood, but she's a bit too weak in the hindquarters. Bryce, of course, divined that Dunstan wanted to sell the horse, and Dunstan knew that he divined it. Horse-stealing is only one of many human transactions carried on in this ingenious manner." And they both considered that the bargain was in its first stage, when Bryce replied ironically, I wonder at that now. I wonder you mean to keep him. For I never heard of a man who didn't want to sell his horse getting a bid of half as much again as the horse was worth. You'll be lucky if you get a hundred. Keating rode up now, and the transaction became more complicated. It ended in the purchase of the horse by Bryce for a hundred and twenty to be paid on the delivery of wildfire, safe and sound, at the Batherley stables. It did occur to Dunsey that it might be wise for him to give up the day's hunting, proceed at once to Batherley, and, having waited for Bryce's return, hire a horse to carry him home with the money in his pocket. But the inclination for a run, encouraged by confidence in his luck, and by a draft of brandy from his pocket-pistol at the conclusion of the bargain, Was not easy to overcome, especially with a horse under him that would take the fences to the admiration of the field. Dunstan, however, took one fence too many, and got his horse pierced with a hedge stake. His own ill favored person, which was quite unmarketable, escaped without injury. But poor Wildfire, unconscious of his price, turned on his flank and painfully panted his last. It happened that Dunstan, a short time before, having had to get down to arrange his stirrup, had muttered a good many curses at this interruption, which had thrown him in the rear of the hunt near the moment of glory, and under this exasperation had taken the fences more blindly. He would soon have been up with the hounds again when the fatal accident happened, and hence he was between eager riders in advance, not troubling themselves about what happened behind them, and far-off stragglers, who were as likely as not to pass quite aloof from the line of road in which wildfire had fallen. Dunstan, whose nature it was to care more for immediate annoyances than for remote consequences, no sooner recovered his legs, and saw that it was all over with wildfire, than he felt a satisfaction at the absence of witnesses to a position which no swaggering could make enviable." Reinforcing himself, after his shake, with a little brandy and much swearing, he walked as fast as he could to a coppice on his right hand, through which it occurred to him that he could make his way to Batherley without danger of encountering any member of the hunt. His first intention was to hire a horse there and ride home forthwith, for to walk many miles without a gun in his hand and along an ordinary road, was as much out of the question to him as to other spirited young men of his kind. He did not much mind about taking the bad news to Godfrey, for he had to offer him at the same time the resource of Marner's money. And if Godfrey kicked, as he always did, at the notion of making a fresh debt from which he himself got the smallest share of advantage, why, he wouldn't kick long. Dunstan felt sure he could worry Godfrey into anything." The idea of Marner's money kept growing in vividness, now the want of it had become immediate. The prospect of having to make his appearance with the muddy boots of a pedestrian at Batherley, and to encounter the grinning queries of stablemen, stood unpleasantly in the way of his impatience to be back at Raveloe and carry out his felicitous plan. And a casual visitation of his waistcoat pocket, as he was ruminating, awakened his memory to the fact that the two or three small coins his forefinger encountered there were of too pale a color to cover that small debt, without payment of which the stable-keeper had declared he would never do any more business with the Duncy Cass. After all, he was not so very much farther from home than he was from Batherley, But Duncy, not being remarkable for clearness of head— was only led to this conclusion by the gradual perception that there were other reasons for choosing the unprecedented course of walking home. It was now nearly four o'clock, and a mist was gathering. The sooner he got into the road, the better. He remembered having crossed the road and seen the finger-post only a little while before wildfire broke down. So, buttoning his coat, twisting the lash of his hunting-whip compactly round the handle— and wrapping the tops of his boots with a self-possessed air, as if to assure himself that he was not at all taken by surprise, he set off with the sense that he was undertaking a remarkable feat of bodily exertion, which somehow, and at some time, he should be able to dress up and magnify to the admiration of a select circle at the rainbow. When a young gentleman like Dunsey is reduced to so exceptional a mode of locomotion as walking, a whip in his hand is a desirable corrective to a too-bewildering, dreamy sense of unwantedness in his position. And Dunstan, as he went along through the gathering mist, was always wrapping his whip somewhere. It was Godfrey's whip, which he had chosen to take without leave, because it had a gold handle. Of course no one could see, when Dunstan held it, that the name Godfrey Cass was cut in deep letters on that gold handle— They could only see that it was a very handsome whip. Dunsey was not without fear that he might meet some acquaintance in whose eyes he would cut a pitiable figure, for mist is no screen when people get close to each other. But when he at last found himself in the well-known Raveloe Lanes without having met a soul, he silently remarked that that was part of his usual good luck. But now the mist, helped by the evening darkness, was more of a screen than he desired, for it hid the ruts into which his feet were liable to slip, hid everything, so that he had to guide his steps by dragging his whip along the low bushes in advance of the hedgerow. He found it, however, by another circumstance which he had not expected, namely, by certain gleams of light which he presently guessed to proceed from Silas Marner's cottage." That cottage, and the money hidden within it, had been in his mind continually during his walk, and he had been imagining ways of cajoling and tempting the weaver to part with the immediate possession of his money for the sake of receiving interest. Dunstan felt as if there must be a little frightening added to the cajolery, for his own arithmetical convictions were not clear enough to afford him any forcible demonstration as to the advantages of interest and as for security, he regarded it vaguely as a means of cheating a man, by making him believe that he would be paid. Altogether, the operation on the miser's mind was a task that Godfrey would be sure to hand over to his more daring and cunning brother. Dunstan had made up his mind to that. And by the time he saw the light gleaming through the chinks of Marner's shutters, the idea of a dialogue with the weaver had become so familiar to him that it occurred to him as quite a natural thing to make the acquaintance forthwith. There might be several conveniences attending this course. The weaver had possibly got a lantern, and Dunstan was tired of feeling his way. He was still nearly three-quarters of a mile from home, and the lane was becoming unpleasantly slippery, for the mist was passing into rain. He turned up the bank, not without some fear lest he might miss the right way, Since he was not certain whether the light were in front or on the side of the cottage. But he felt the ground before him cautiously with his whip handle, and at last arrived safely at the door. He knocked loudly, rather enjoying the idea that the old fellow would be frightened at the sudden noise. He heard no movement in reply. All was silence in the cottage. Was the weaver gone to bed, then? If so, why had he left a light? That was a strange forgetfulness in a miser. Dunstan knocked still more loudly, and without pausing for a reply, pushed his fingers through the latch-hole, intending to shake the door and pull the latch-string up and down, not doubting that the door was fastened. But, to his surprise, at this double motion the door opened, And he found himself in front of a bright fire which lit up every corner of the cottage—the bed, the loom, the three chairs, and the table—and showed him that Marner was not there. Nothing at that moment could be more inviting to Dunsey than the bright fire on the brick hearth. He walked in and seated himself by it at once. There was something in front of the fire, too, that would have been inviting to a hungry man, "'if it had been in a different stage of cooking. "'It was a small bit of pork suspended from the kettle-hanger by a string "'passed through a large door-key, "'in a way known to primitive housekeepers unpossessed of jacks. "'But the pork had been hung at the farthest extremity of the hanger, "'apparently to prevent the roasting from proceeding too rapidly "'during the owner's absence. "'The old staring simpleton had hot meat for his supper then,' "'thought Dunstan.' People had always said he lived on moldy bread, on purpose to check his appetite. But where could he be at this time, and on such an evening, leaving his supper in this stage of preparation, and his door unfastened? Dunstan's own recent difficulty in making his way suggested to him that the weaver had perhaps gone outside his cottage to fetch in fuel, or for some such brief purpose, and had slipped into the stone pit. That was an interesting idea to Dunstan, carrying consequences of entire novelty. If the weaver was dead, who had a right to his money? Who would know where his money was hidden? Who would know that anybody had come to take it away? He went no farther into the subtleties of evidence, the pressing question, where is the money, now took such entire possession of him as to make him quite forget that the weaver's death was not a certainty. A dull mind, once arriving at an inference that flatters a desire, is rarely able to retain the impression that the notion from which the inference started was purely problematic. And Dunstan's mind was as dull as the mind of a possible felon usually is." There were only three hiding-places where he had ever heard of cottagers' hoards being found—the thatch, the bed, and a hole in the floor. Marner's cottage had no thatch, and Dunstan's first act, after a train of thought made rapid by the stimulus of cupidity, was to go up to the bed. But while he did so, his eyes travelled eagerly over the floor, where the bricks, distinct in the firelight, were discernible under the sprinkling of sand." but not everywhere. For there was one spot, and one only, which was quite covered with sand, and sand showing the marks of fingers, which had apparently been careful to spread it over a given space. It was near the treadles of the loom. In an instant, Dunstan darted to that spot, swept away the sand with his whip, and, inserting the thin end of the hook between the bricks, found that they were loose." In haste, he lifted up two bricks, and saw what he had no doubt was the object of his search. For what could there be but money in those two leathern bags? And from their weight, they must be filled with guineas. Dunstan felt round the hole to be certain that it held no more, then hastily replaced the bricks and spread the sand over them. Hardly more than five minutes had passed since he entered the cottage— But it seemed to Dunstan like a long while, and though he was without any distinct recognition of the possibility that Marner might be alive and might re enter the cottage at any moment, he felt an undefinable dread laying hold on him as he rose to his feet with the bags in his hand. He would hasten out into the darkness and then consider what he should do with the bags. He closed the door behind him immediately that he might shut in the stream of light. A few steps would be enough to carry him beyond betrayal by the gleams from the shutter chinks and the latch-hole. The rain and darkness had got thicker, and he was glad of it. Though it was awkward walking with both hands filled, so that it was as much as he could do to grasp his whip along with one of the bags. But when he had gone a yard or two, he might take his time. So, He stepped forward into the darkness.